Today's text is coming from Hebrews 6. Have a look at this. These are the words of the living God. I'll be starting in verse 13. Verse 13 of Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the passage we'll look at today. So this text comes from the Holy Spirit, inspired of God, and it has a purpose. God's purpose in this particular paragraph here is He wants to press upon our minds and our hearts His desire for us. Now the text says He wants us to hold fast onto our hope in Him. And, and Hebrews has been telling us, don't drift. He doesn't want us to drift into some false hopes that have been offered by the world. So here's the proposition of made it as simple for you as I can possibly come up with. The proposition is this, that God wants you to hope in Him. That's what the text is teaching us. It's exhorting us to do, to be encouraged to put our hope in Him. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the, the text in verse 13 starts with the word for. Some Bibles use the word because. Or is kind of another word for because. Now the writer is giving support for what went before this particular paragraph. So it's been a while, so remind, let's remind ourselves what goes before verse 13. Look at verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 says uh, that we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the aim of those two verses, 11 and 12, is the same as we see in this paragraph we just read. God wants you to have the full assurance of hope. He doesn't want your hope to be weak, to be flimsy, but he wants you to have a strong, full, confident hope, lest you, notice it says, become sluggish or dull, and you begin to think that this Christian hope is not as real as the hopes as the world is offering to you. 
Well, that's the danger this book warns us against, and it does it over and over and over. Don't be sluggish in the way you, you fight to keep your hope strong and alive. Don't be sluggish. Don't be dull. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't stop. <laughs> right? Don't be sluggish in the way you fight to keep your hope strong and alive. Why? Why? Well, notice, because as verse 12 says, it's only through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. Only through faith and patience. What is faith? Hopefully you remember this coming from Hebrews 11, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And we maintain that assurance or that faith. Notice it says here in verse 11, you, you maintain it through diligence. So drifting in the Christian life is deadly. you got to be diligent. you got to keep rowing, if you will. And what's going to keep us from drifting? Well, the text here says we need to hold on to something that is solid, something that's not drifting. So what can you and I put our hope in? What can we put our hope in? Well, the text is telling us to hope in God. And there's some specific things about God, some truths about God that make Him worthy of putting our hope in. So that's, that's the main points we're going to look at from this text today. Number one, Christians have hope in God's person. So you can hope because of God's person. Now, verses 13 through 15, we see God is the main subject. He's the main actor here. It's, it's, it's about him. He's, he's bringing glory and honor to himself because of who he is. Now, why would he do that? Is he some egomaniac? No. No. No one in the universe is greater than God. So notice, God made a promise to Abraham, verse 13 says. Why? Because there is no one greater than God. No one in the universe is greater than God. And, and the reason, by the way, he cannot lie is that he is the one who invented truth. Why does he command us not to lie in the Ten Commandments? Don't deceive people with false witness. Because God is truth. Jesus in John 14 said, I am truth. So he is truth. He invented truth. And by definition, then whatever he says is true. By the way, the, his, the very nature of his person, he cannot lie. He can't. He has no capacity to lie. Therefore, his promises then are secure because of his very nature, of his character, his person. So whatever he does has to be right. Whatever he says has to be true. And so if God makes a promise, like he talks about here that he did to Abraham... Well, then what does that mean? If God makes a promise, well, then he's not only going to keep the promise, he must keep the promise. He has to do what he said he's going to do. He has to. And he has, of course, he has the ability to do so. So we need to ask the question, because verse 13 here mentions uh, this promise that God made to Abraham. Well, to whom did God make a promise? Who is this guy, Abraham? Well, let me just give you a quick introduction so we understand who God's talking about here. Uh, and I put a little uh, map on the screen here, in case you don't 
know your geography that well. First of all, you need to understand, prior to uh, what we generally know about Abraham, particularly in Romans 4, Abraham was raised as a pagan. Okay, Apparently, for many generations, his family had worshipped false gods. He did grow up in uh, Ur, which was an ancient city of, the, of Mesopotamia. It's way down there in the, in the uh, south right side, so toward the Persian Gulf. I believe that's in modern-day Iraq. And so for his own reasons, God spoke to Abram at this time. God commanded him first to go to Haran. So you'll see Haran kind of follows the river up there to the northwest. And uh, Abraham obeyed. Abraham goes to Haran, and he stayed there for a while before he went to the promised land of Canaan. It's interesting, God commends Abraham for his faith in, in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11. Look what he says here in verse 8. It's on the screen. He says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. (laughs) That is amazing to me. Think about that. How many of you would go somewhere not knowing where your destination was? Do you just get in your vehicle or start walking and say, okay, I'm going somewhere, I have no idea where I'm going, but supposedly God's going to tell me when I get there. Well, that's what Abraham did. He just leaves, because God tells him to go. He doesn't know where he's going to stop and what God is exactly up to. So with no guarantee but God's word that he's going to get there, Abraham believed. He's, He's trusting. That's... That's what faith is. He's trusting in God, and so he went. And then you come to Genesis chapter 12 in your Bible. And God gives the Abrahamic covenant, the first time it's given in in the first three verses of Genesis 12. God promised there Abraham would would get the the land of Canaan to, to him and his descendants. And then that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And although Abraham was childless at the time and his wife Sarah was barren, God also promised Abraham that his descendants would be too numerous to count. Remember he said, your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. (laughs) Any of you ever walk down the beach, start picking up little grains of sand, start counting them? Imagine how tedious of a job that would be. But anyway, for for many years, Abraham remained childless. God did not keep that promise right away that he gave in Genesis 12. In fact, it it was approximately 25 years later that God eventually gives him a child, who, of course, was Isaac. So Isaac finally comes along when Abraham's like 100 years old. He was the promised son He was finally born. Here he is. (laughs) But he becomes a teenager. And then the Bible says that God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And so having no idea of the Lord's reasons for this, or what exactly would happen, Abraham obeyed. He obeyed because he believed God, the Bible says. 
even believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead if he he chose to. So had not God miraculously intervened in that situation, remember, because Isaac was on the altar, Abraham was going to kill his only son. God intervenes, provides a substitute sacrifice, so Abraham did not need to sacrifice Isaac there on Mount Moriah. Yet Abraham's faith was not blind. Okay, Faith in God is not a blind faith. Somehow, someway, Abraham could see God's character, which is amazing because he didn't have the scriptures. Therefore, what did he do? He, he, he's trusting God. How could he trust God and why? Well, when the Lord makes a promise... What God is doing is he's actually putting his name, his reputation, and his integrity on the line. Every promise of God is secured by his own character. See, if if he doesn't do what he says, then his name, his honor, his reputation, and character is at stake. And so my friends, just as surely as God has kept his promise to Abraham, don't lose sight of this. There's, there's application here, an implication for you. What is God going to do? He's going to keep his promise to all those who trust in his son. <laughs> so his basic promise to Abraham, if you, if you look at the text here, which is quoting from, from Genesis 22, is that I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. So a legitimate question then is, Has God kept his promise to Abraham? Has he? Well, if you you study the the Israeli uh, descendants of Abraham, uh, the statistic I saw is today there's over 14 million of the physical descendants of Abraham. Despite the fact, it seems like everyone around them wants to wipe them off the map and and totally get rid of them, they're still there. <laughs> it's only because God keeps them there. He's keeping his promise to Abraham. 14 million of them, over 14 million physical descendants in the world today. And not only that, the Bible, uh, we have many more millions around the world that are Abraham's spiritual descendants. Did you remember what Romans 4 said? Romans 4 said that Abraham is the father of a lot more than just the physical descendant. He's the father of all who believe. And so God has indeed kept his promise to Abraham. That's because God can't fail. God has never failed, never will fail. Abraham was secure because of the very person of God. So he cannot possibly back out on his promises. Therefore, you and I can trust God because he has no capacity for deceiving us. And he has, there is no failure in his nature. Well, Christians today have more of God's promises than Abraham did. We have more of the scriptures than Abraham did. So let me ask you, my friends, why, why, why is it that we struggle? What is keeping Christians today from making spiritual progress? Could it be that we don't apply ourselves by faith? Abraham's commended for his faith. So is it something about faith that's holding us back from making spiritual progress? Are we not applying ourselves by 
faith. Because God's not the problem, right? God hasn't changed. His promises haven't changed. So maybe it's you and me. (laughs) So what does that mean, then, to apply ourselves by faith? Well, as Jesus often did, let me use a uh, farming illustration, which I hope... uh, which I hope we'll all understand, which might help us to understand this. So imagine a farmer sitting on his porch, staring at his seed. The seed sitting there in the shed. Imagine that uh, farmer, you know, he, he's, he's hoping he's going to reap a great harvest, a, you know, a bountiful crop, but all he does is sit on his porch in his rocking chair and stare at the seed. What do you think is going to happen? He's hoping to get a bountiful crop. Is it going to happen by just sitting on the porch, rocking in his chair, staring at his seed? (laughs) Oh, no. Farmer has to get busy. Farmer has to do some plowing and planting. And and, uh, often, you know, some farmers do weeding and cultivating. And some farmers even put water on the soil (laughs) in dry parts of the world. Well, there's a spiritual lesson in that. You have to get busy. You have to apply yourself. The Bible puts it this way. You reap what you sow. Right? Are you going to reap if you don't sow? No. You're not going to reap any, you're not going to reap a crop, a bountiful harvest if you don't sow. Well, there's a spiritual lesson in what the Bible says there. And the physical truth, of course, carries over into the spiritual realm as well. And so, my friends, We need to understand this, in some ways, sad truth. See, a believer who neglects the means of grace, who neglects things like, for example, church fellowship and ignores his Bible and uh, doesn't pray, you're not reaping, or sorry, you're you're not sowing. Therefore, you're not going to reap. If you're not doing the the means of grace that God has given to us, then you're not going to get much, much of a harvest. And so the solution is to, to apply ourselves by faith, as Abraham did. And by the way, you can't do it because, or you sorry, you can do it because of God. God hasn't changed. He's a God who is worthy of your hope. Because of his very person, his nature, his character, and is worthy of our hope. Well, there's a second part here in this text, what Christians can hope in. Christians have hope in God's Word. Number two, Christians have hope in God's Word. Notice what verse 16 says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So Christians have hope in God's word, or at least we should. Verse 17, by the way, notice says, God made an oath. Why did God make an oath? Well, notice it, it's referring to Bible times there. It was common in Bible times for a person to make an oath on something or to something greater than themselves. So in, in Bible times, they might, they might make an oath to the altar or 
to the temple or to the high priest, or they might make an oath to God. I swear to God that I will do this, or I will pay you this. And so by making that sort of thing, then, then uh, an oath, you know, once that oath was made, the argument was over, the dispute was over. It was ended. It was assumed that nobody would make that kind of an oath unless he's determined to keep his promise, to keep his oath. So, even today, what do people do? They go to court. Even unbelievers might put their hand on a Bible, right? <laughs> they may not believe the Bible, but they might put their hand on the Bible and, so help me God, I will tell the truth and nothing but the truth, right? right? What, what are they doing? They're making an oath that they're going to tell the truth. I'm going, I'm swearing on something greater than myself when they swear and put their hand on the Bible. Well, guess what? God didn't need to make an oath because He's already the greatest. His word is every bit as good without an oath as ours ought to be. But nevertheless, to accommodate the the weak faith of men, what does God do here? God swore His promise on himself. And so since his promise was already unbreakable, his pledge did not make his promise any more secure than it already was, but nevertheless, God gives it as further assurance to those who are slow to believe. And that was a that was a common problem with Hebrews, slow to believe some of them. There's the danger of drifting, not holding on to Christ. And so the word of God is guarantee enough but then god gave an oath just to show that he meant what he said so what is the oath what is this pledge well uh, if you compare scripture with scripture i believe the the pledge of god's oath is the holy spirit uh, several times the bible talks about this for example three times the apostle paul refers to the holy spirit as god's pledge for believers let me just give you one example. In Hebrews, or sorry, not Hebrews, Ephesians 1, verse 13, it says this, that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So notice Holy Spirit's this, this guarantee. He's, he's a pledge. He's, he's a promise of something that's going to happen until you get that inheritance. Well, as if his bare promise were not enough, God swears an oath on himself, and then he gives us the presence of the Holy Spirit as a pledge of the oath. Verse 18 is interesting. It mentions two unchangeable things. What are the two unchangeable things that God's talking about? Well, I, I think the two unchangeable things here are, according to the text, number one, God's promise and God's pledge. So God makes a promise, and then he gives this, this pledge, this, this oath, this guarantee to go with it, showing that it's, the promise is going to happen. What do these two unchangeable things encourage us to do? Notice what the text says. It encourages us to hold fast to the hope. The hope. Interesting. The text, my text here has the word the. 
as if this is the hope. There is no greater hope. It's the only thing that is sure that I can put my assurance and confidence in. And notice, what is the hope set before us? Because it says that the hope is set before us. Well, the hope is Jesus himself and the gospel that he brought, this good news. Uh, Again, other scriptures point this out. For example, uh, the Apostle Paul mentions in 1 Timothy, he, he speaks of his Savior as Christ Jesus, who is our hope. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul speaks of the gospel as our hope. You say, well, that's two things. Can they both be our hope? Yeah, they're, they're, how do you separate the gospel from Jesus Christ? <laughs> Jesus is the good news. And so, my friend, let me ask you, where is your hope? Do you have the hope? The hope? The only hope that is rock solid, that you can, you can put your whole life and destiny on? If it's on anything other than Christ, it is not, it's not a hope. So, Christians have hope because of Christ. And the text goes on to, to tell us a little bit more about Christ. We see number three here, Christians have hope in God's anchor. God's anchor here is described for us in various ways in verse 19. Look, look at verse 19. It says, we have this, what, what, what's this? This hope. This hope is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So again, the hope goes into the inner place. Well, again, that shows you that's Jesus. So what do we what do we learn about Jesus from verse 19? Number one, Jesus is an anchor for our soul. The spiritual anchor is different from physical anchors on, on a ship or on a boat. <laughs> Praise God for that, because... If you have any experience with anchors, you know that they're not always steadfast and sure, (laughs) right? And have you ever experienced anchors that weren't steadfast and sure? I have. Well, praise God, this spiritual anchor is different because most anchors, if you go out in a boat or a ship, what do they do? They drop the anchor, right? It goes down. But notice this anchor goes up. This, This anchor is anchored upward to heaven, not downward. We're anchored not to stand still, which is usually the purpose of the anchor on a boat, right? It's to keep the boat from moving, keep it still, to keep it anchored. God wants us to be moving ahead, to moving on to spiritual maturity in Him. And so God says here, our anchor is sure. Our anchor is sure. That just means your anchor in Christ cannot break. Again, praise God, the anchor can't break. There's been a few times when I'm out in, in friends' boats, and you, the anchor breaks. It's frustrating. You know, you, often you, you have a rope or a chain or something tied to the anchor, and it's usually not the anchor itself that breaks. It's whatever attached to it. Uh, it it's, it's frustrating when it breaks, and you can't rely upon the anchor to hold you in place. As if that wasn't enough, God says this anchor is also steadfast. In other words, it's not going to slip, it's not going to slide. 
And that's frustrating if you're trying to fish. You know, you're, you're trying to fish, you've put down your anchor, you think you're in a good fishing spot. This has happened to me before as well. You, you know, you, you get your spots, you see fish on the, on the fish finder, you, you get the burly trail going, you expect to catch lots of fish. You're hoping the anchor's going to keep you in the spot, but it doesn't. The anchor moves. <laughs> it doesn't stay steadfast. That's not good. Not a good thing. It's slipping. It's sliding. It's not keeping you where you want to stay. Well, praise God, no earthly anchor can, uh, can give the kind of security that you can have in Jesus Christ, because he is the anchor of your soul. So, my friends, how can Jesus be the anchor of your soul? How can he? Well, the text in verse 19 says he's, he's done this because of where he went. Notice, where did he go? It says he entered into the inner place. And that's the second point that the text is making here in verse 19, that Jesus entered into the inner place. Now, what, what is the inner place? Well, you, you have to go back to your Old Testament, get the Old Testament imagery. It signifies that holy of holies, that place within the tabernacle and temple where the sacrifice of atonement was made one time every year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, to that inner place. And so under the New Covenant, it, it, it's been made once for all time, Hebrews says, by Christ through His sacrifice on the cross. And so in God's mind, our anchored soul is something that's already secure within His eternal sanctuary. And so when Jesus entered into the heavenly holy of holies, he didn't do what the high priest had to do. You know, the high priest didn't stay in the holy of holies, right? He had to leave. He, did, he went in, made the sacrifice, sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, and he leaves. But Jesus didn't do that. The Bible says, in fact, Hebrews tells us, when Jesus went into this inner place of heaven, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, Jesus stayed in that inner place. He didn't walk out. He remains there because He is the guardian of your soul. He's not leaving. <laughs> so that's good news. We can then have hope in God's anchor because... He is the continuing guardian of your soul. But verse 20 also tells us a wonderful truth. Look at verse 20, because it says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So Jesus is described as a forerunner. The idea of for, someone goes before. So he runs before you. He goes, what has he done? Well, this Savior has gone ahead to heaven... So that one day, all those who have put their faith in him can follow. Now compare that to the Old Testament high priest. The Old Testament high priest was not a forerunner. Because nobody could follow him into the Holy of Holies. He's the only one allowed in there. <laughs> but then Jesus Christ went in. He stayed. And he's the forerunner. And so Jesus Christ has gone to heaven so that one day all Christians would follow him. 
All Christians can do what Jesus promised would happen when he talked about the rapture in John 14, verse 2. Here's what he said about the rapture. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Notice Jesus' promise. I go, I'm coming back, and when I come back, I'm going to take you with me to my Father's house. What is he talking about? Of course, he's talking about heaven. This capital city of heaven, the new Jerusalem. He's building rooms in the Father's house for all believers. And so if you're a believer, you have a room, or it's being built. I'm not sure which it is. Nevertheless, when Jesus comes back, all the rooms will be done. The great creator of the universe has a special room for you, and you get to go live with him forever. And so Jesus is a forerunner. Because he's gone, he stayed, he's promised he's coming back for you, guess what? You then have assurance. You have the hope that this is going to happen. The last point that Hebrews chapter 6 tells us here is that Jesus became a high priest forever. Again, very different from the the earthly high priest that Israel had. Because notice what verse 20 says. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. But notice he's not like the Aaronic priesthood. The priesthood that came from the tribe of Levi, he's, he's different. He's after the order of Melchizedek. Now we'll learn a little bit more about him in chapter 7. But that, that makes him different from Moses' brother Aaron, who was the first of the high priest. See, Jesus became a high priest forever. Unlike the high priest of Israel, who they constantly changed. They died and they had to get a new one. No, Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies. He doesn't have to do it every year. He did it once for all. He, he doesn't bring in the blood of an animal The Bible says he brings in his own infinitely precious blood and his own indestructible life so that his atoning work for all believers is perfect and it lasts. And it lasts forever. Unlike those those sacrifices of Israel that had to continually be made year after year, all they did was just cover, temporarily cover. But the blood of Christ is perfect and it lasts forever. So my friends... Be sure to lay hold of the main lesson here. The main lesson is that believers must go on to maturity. And and God's made that possible for us to do this. He's made it possible in Christ for you to go on to maturity. And so if you put your faith in Him, He's conquered sin. He's conquered uh, the, 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 the power of sin in your life, Romans 6 tells us. He one day, ultimately, sin will be removed and will be glorified. But God's made this possible for us to go on to maturity. But there's a warning several times in the Hebrews here. The warning is a very serious danger that we need to watch out for. Now, I'll put, it on, I'll put the progression here, lest you, you've forgotten the progression going through Hebrews. So way back in Hebrews chapter 2, we saw that there's a danger. The Bible says, don't drift from the Word of God. 
God's Word is sure, it's steadfast, it is, it is something that's reliable, something we can trust in. The danger for you and me, just as it was for these Hebrews, is that we drift from the Word. We start to put our hopes in something else, a false hope. So Hebrews 2 says, don't drift from the Word. If you do this, then number 2 is going to happen. Which comes from Hebrews 3 and 4. Then you'll start to doubt the word. And, and so then you've got people who, who start to question the inspiration of Scripture, start to question, is, is Scripture really sufficient? Is it, is it everything that I need for life and godliness? Or is there something else out there that I'm not getting? Right? People start to doubt the word of God, and when you do that, Hebrews 5 and 6 tells us you will become dull toward the word. You become dull. Or as the previous verses here in Hebrews 6, verse 12 say, you will become sluggish. You'll become sluggish. And eventually, when that happens, you become lazy. You're not going on. You're not moving forward. You're sitting. When you sit, you, the tendency is to, to be swept away by the current of the world. That's not what God would have for us. And so, my friends, what's the solution? The best way to keep from drifting is to have a sure and steadfast anchor. In other words, God says here to lay hold of the anchor who is Jesus Christ himself. So did you catch that in verse 18? God wants you to have a strong encouragement to do something. The strong encouragement is to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. So have you done that? If you have done that, you need to keep doing that. Don't drift from the Word. That's where it starts. We, we, just, we stop neglecting the Word of God. It's not important to us, not as important to us. There's other things more important. That's where it starts. Well, there's some songs that I've found incredibly encouraging as we think about the anchor of our soul. I don't know if you know this particular hymn. I just want to sing the first verse of, of these hymns, and then we'll finish by singing a, a hymn together. There's a hymn called, We Have an Anchor. You know that one? It goes like this in verse 1. It is safely moored, will the storm withstand, for it is well secured by the Savior's hand. And the cables passed from his heart to mine can defy that blast through strength divine. We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. There's another hymn that may be new to some of you that I haven't been able to get out of my head as I've been studying Hebrews chapter 6. Let me just teach it for those of you who are, who's new to this particular hymn, and then uh, Hamish is going to come and uh, he'll do PowerPoint. And so let me just sing the first verse in chorus for you. 
And it's really coming from that verse we just read in Hebrews 6, verse 18. God's given us a, a refuge. And if you fled to that refuge, you would then have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. But here's, here's how verse 1 goes. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Would you stand with me and we'll sing through all of the verses together. <clears throat> 